This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. It was June 20th, 1893. Throngs of spectators and reporters packed the benches of the modest courthouse in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Media coverage had created a frenzy across the United States. It was, after all, a shocking case, particularly shocking because of the identity of the accused. Lizzie Borden was 32 at the time of her trial. Despite her overnight celebrity, she was still a reserved spinster and Sunday school teacher. She had been a loving daughter to Andrew Borden, the man she now stood accused of murdering, along with her stepmother, Abby. The victims had been found after breakfast, slaughtered gruesomely with a hatchet. The trial had lasted over two weeks, yet the jury needed only 90 minutes to come to their decision, not guilty. The courtroom burst into cheers. Lizzie collapsed in her seat. She would be going home soon to a town that never again discussed the case with outsiders, Fall River, Massachusetts. No other suspect was ever charged for the double homicide. The case just went away, even though citizens of Fall River later said they, quote, had no doubt Lizzie did it. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today we're talking about Lizzie Borden, the Sunday school teacher who allegedly slaughtered her parents in their own home. While the evidence against her is overwhelming, especially by today's standards, 
Her guilt was never proven in court. If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them and all of ParCast's shows on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Many of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to help is to leave us a five-star review. For more than a century, Lizzie Borden scholars have debated and disputed what took place the morning of her parents' murders. Dozens of theories have cropped up to explain mysteries surrounding the case, but most fall short. What happened to the murder weapon? Why was the family maid whisked back to Ireland following the trial? And most importantly, if Lizzie Borden was really innocent, who was the real killer? Had this trial taken place today, the results likely would have been entirely different. Clumsy investigators misplaced vital clues, and forensics of the time misinterpreted what was left. And the all-male jury simply couldn't believe an educated woman of means was also an axe murderer. Even though Lizzie was found innocent, the prevailing opinion today is that she was very guilty. This episode will discuss how and why she murdered her parents. The next episode will reveal how she got away with it. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born in 1860 to parents Sarah and Andrew. Her father and namesake, Andrew Borden, was an undertaker turned slum landlord turned bank president who would eventually volley his success into half a million dollars in total assets. That's over $12 million today, a veritable empire. But you don't amass an empire without being a bit frugal. Frugal is an understatement. By all accounts, Andrew Borden was downright tight-fisted with his money. Over the years, he'd fined and evicted countless tenants, raising rent if he suspected they were prospering. When he was working as an undertaker, townspeople joked he would cut the feet off his corpses if it meant they'd fit into a cheaper coffin. A lifetime of this behavior had made Andrew plenty of enemies, but it also made life secure for Lizzie and her older sister, Emma, although they weren't exactly spoiled with comforts. Running water was something Andrew considered a luxury. He had only two faucets on his entire property, one for his family and one for his horses. To save money, both pumped only cold water. By the time Lizzie was born, her sister Emma was already nine years old. Despite their age difference, the two sisters were close. This isn't surprising, considering the tragedy they went through together. In 1862, when Lizzie was two years old, her birth mother, Sarah Morse, died of uterine congestion and infection of the spine, a very painful disease that has been known to cause depression, intense mood swings, and severe pain. Little else is known about Lizzie's mother, other than that she and Andrew were married at 22, when they were both still struggling financially, and that before she gave birth to Lizzie, she had a son, who died at the age of three or four. But more importantly than how Lizzie grew up is where she grew up, in the coastal town of Fall River, Massachusetts. Shortly after Sarah and Andrew Borden were married, the town experienced an economic boom as it quickly became one of the most important whaling ports in the world. This boom carried some families, such as the Bordens, to sudden wealth. 
but it also increased the town's working-class population. There was hardly any middle class to speak of. Over the second part of the 19th century, Fall River had become highly stratified, a place intensely divided by both economic status and moral attitude. Fall River, Massachusetts thought so highly of itself that it even bestowed a shining nickname on the most elite part of town, the Hill. Everyone in Fall River knew where the hill was and what it stood for. It wasn't really a hill, but a steep slope to the waterfront at the northern part of town. To live up on the hill became, in Lizzie's youth, the goal of Fall River ambition. For Lizzie, this ambition would slowly morph into a greed too large to ignore. Before we start to delve into Lizzie's psychology, I just want to give a brief disclaimer. Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Sammy. It's important to remember the role women played in the late 19th century. By and large, daughters were expected to marry and raise children, while sons pursued business and higher education. If Lizzie's father, Andrew, had any hope of passing his business and name onto a son— It died when Lizzie was born. That's when Andrew bestowed his name upon Lizzie as a middle name. This was the start of a significant bond between the father and daughter. When Lizzie was two years old, her mother died of a very painful and public affliction. This exposed Lizzie to intense suffering at a very early age. Her remaining parent, a notoriously ruthless businessman and undertaker, was splitting his time between caring for his daughters and preparing corpses. It's safe to say, then, that Lizzie's childhood wasn't particularly warm. That's right. For the next three years, Lizzie was watched only by maids. Her father was constantly working and not often around. According to the research of Dr. Suzanne Lackman, uninvolved caregivers often cause their children to have low self-esteem. If your achievements aren't noticed by your parents, it can make you feel unimportant and drive you to seek validation elsewhere. For Lizzie, this would manifest itself in her aspirations to move up onto the hill, an accomplishment that few of Fall River's citizens could claim. But Lizzie isn't the only woman in our story who longed to climb the social ladder. When she was five years old, a new figure entered Lizzie's life, Abby Durfee Gray. It was becoming more and more difficult for Andrew to care for two girls, in addition to his ever-blossoming real estate and business holdings. Always the tactician, Andrew thought it logical to take another wife. In 1865, he entered into marriage with the 37-year-old spinster, who was widely considered to be an old maid. Socially, Abby used an old family name, Durfee, to associate herself with one of the founding families of the area. She desired respect and social status, but was often disregarded as the daughter of a pushcart peddler. To marry someone of Andrew's growing status was entirely unexpected, but completely advantageous to the both of them. Abby, a lower-class spinster, was gaining a wealthy husband and a home to run. Andrew, for his part, was satisfied finding someone to tend to his daughters and his home without expecting anything else in return, financially or even romantically. This marriage of convenience never sat well with Lizzie's sister, 14-year-old Emma. She refused to call Abby mother and would never miss an opportunity to point out that she was Andrew's second wife. Lizzie, being only five, did not object to the union and freely called Abby mother. 
the first decade of Andrew and Abby's marriage passed pleasantly enough, Andrew's real estate holdings grew, along with his financial success. Lizzie was growing too, turning 20 in 1880. As her family's wealth increased, she lusted more and more to enter high society and move up on the hill. Her father, however, would never waste his hard-earned money on such expensive real estate, even if it raised his family's status. Lizzie was in a bind. She wanted to be important, but in a male-dominated society, she didn't have many avenues to advance herself. It didn't help that she was lazy as sin. That's according to Virginia Lincoln, a Fall River native and a contemporary to Lizzie Borden. Also according to Lincoln, Lizzie was... Tall, stocky, jowly, dressy, and unremarkable. Like her older sister, she was often without social engagements. Like her father, she didn't have many friends. As she got older, kindly hostesses found it harder to arrange escorts for her when planning parties. But this may not have had much to do with her unremarkable features. Sources close to Lizzie later in life speculate that she was never interested in men romantically, but women. If she ever acted on these inclinations, it was kept very private. Being gay was certainly not accepted in Fall River in the 1870s. This may be the reason why, when she was 18, she gave her high school ring to her father instead of a male suitor. Though this may also have been an effort to establish a rivalry with her stepmother. Lizzie most definitely considered Abby to be her rival, for many reasons, not least of which were potential claims on the Borden sister inheritance, which, adjusted for today's inflation, was worth over $12 million. Even split two ways, that would be enough wealth to cement a spot for Lizzie among high society one day up on the hill. Even though they were in their 20s, the two sisters, Lizzie and Emma, were still living at home, steadily approaching spinsterhood. It would have been wise, then, for Abby to invest time with her stepdaughters, to create a meaningful relationship. According to Emma in a court deposition, neither Borden sister, quote, ever felt that Abby was much interested in them, end quote. Life was difficult for Abby, too, though. Her marital arrangement with Andrew was anything but easy, and she'd begun to eat compulsively. Though she had married up, Fall River still disregarded her as a lonely, self-pitying glutton. She had one friend, her half-sister, who kindly asked her to dinner every three or four months. Perhaps because she was lonely, or because it was a shrewd business deal, Andrew decided to do something for Abby. In 1887, he bought the home her sister and mother had been renting and put it in Abby's name so that she could collect rent. He did so at the urging of his former brother-in-law, John Morse. Lizzie was 27 at the time. This exchange was all done in secret. It wasn't until a friend of a friend of Abby's let the cat out of the bag that the Borden sisters found out. They were furious that their father had put such a large property in Abby's name and grew paranoid that their inheritance would soon be in jeopardy. In way of a compromise, Andrew gave Emma and Lizzie a double house from which they could also collect rent, with no stipulation on how to spend it. Now Abby, Emma, and Lizzie were all collecting the same amount, $1,500 a month. Today, that would be more than $37,000. Even though things had been squared away financially, 
the Borden sisters would never forgive Abby for the incident. In their minds, she had made a play for their inheritance. In reality, Abby didn't even pocket the rent she was collecting. She gave it to Andrew. She would never have enough money of her own to even write small checks. At this point in 1887, Lizzie and Emma stopped participating in family dinners, forcing household staff to lay out two sets of play settings for every meal. Lizzie never called Abby mother again, only Mrs. Borden. But at least she still spoke to Abby. After this dispute, neither Lizzie nor Emma ever spoke to John Morse again. Lizzie would talk widely over town about how he had gotten her father to go behind their backs. She never blamed Andrew, though, only her stepmother, for pressuring him into weakness. In fact, the more you know about Lizzie's relationship with Andrew, the more it seems she had an unhealthy fixation towards him. According to the psychological theory of Carl Jung, this sort of father fixation is known as an Electra complex, a normal stage of psychosexual development, which should pass after the age of six. At this point, a daughter is capable of identifying with her mother and relinquishes feelings of competition. Lizzie, however, was without a mother from the age of three to five, when she would have been entering this stage. She was five years old when her father remarried a woman who showed very little interest in her. This could mean that Lizzie, consciously or not, forever viewed Abby as her rival. From there, it took only one more family argument for Lizzie to decide something needed to be done about her father's second wife. We'll see what she did after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1887, the Borden household was becoming incredibly tense. Sisters Lizzie and Emma were living together with their father Andrew and stepmother Abby, and a secret real estate deal had put everyone on edge. Two years later, in 1889, a new figure entered the Borden home, Bridget Sullivan, a 19-year-old immigrant who was hired as the family maid. Not much is known about Bridget other than that she was born in Allahees, Ireland in 1869, had a thick Irish accent, and in the years following the trial was stern, with no sense of humor. That's according to Sullivan's grandniece, Diana Porter. But Lizzie, who was 29 when she met Bridget, apparently had a sense of humor with her. She even gave her a nickname, Maggie. In that time in the United States, the name Bridget was commonly used as a derogatory term for a lower-class maid, particularly one from Ireland. Many have supposed that, to avoid mockery, Lizzie started using the name Maggie instead of Bridget out of respect. Others have pointed out that the Borden's previous maid was named Maggie and wondered if Lizzie simply never bothered to learn a new name. Whatever the reason, Lizzie was certainly considerate of Bridget in other ways. She never accused her of the slightest indiscretion, not even a robbery that was never solved. 
In June of 1891, the Borden household was broken into. The perpetrator was never apprehended. There is an undeniable amount of evidence, however, that points to Lizzie. First of all, the crime took place in broad daylight. While Emma, Lizzie, and Bridget were at home, the doors were locked. The windows were barred. The cellar door was bolted from the inside. The back lot was secured with barbed wire. The neighbors' houses were so close on either side that you could speak from one to the next without raising your voice. All in all, the thief had to have been quick, quiet, and well-informed, if not altogether invisible, to get in and out undetected. That is, unless the thief already lived inside the house. Something else to consider is the motivation for the robbery. Once the thief entered the house, they went directly to Andrew and Abby's bedroom, but only took things that belonged to Abby. A gold watch and chain, a very modest supply of jewelry, and over $100 of pin money provided by her husband. No one else's belongings were even touched. When Andrew Borden arrived home, he sent for the police. They spoke to Lizzie, who was overexcited, talking incessantly. She took them down to the cellar, showing them the door she said she had found unbolted, with a large nail stuck in the keyhole, as if it had been used to pick the lock. No one else had seen or heard anything. Andrew Borden requested at once that the theft never be reported to the papers. Three times in the next two weeks, he asked for the investigation to be dropped. He assured the police that they would never catch the real thief, and that was his final word on the subject. He was right. This crime was never solved, but it seems Andrew and Abby had their own suspicions about who was behind it. Abby, despite all the precautions already in place, took further measures to protect her room, particularly from Lizzie. She had a deadbolt and lock, one of the strongest available, installed on her bedroom door, which led directly into Lizzie's room. The only way Lizzie could get into her parents' bedroom now was to go down the stairs, out the front door, around the house, and up the stairs through the back door. There was one other way. Andrew placed the key to his bedroom door on the family room mantelpiece, in plain sight, almost as if he were tempting someone to take it, or shaming them for what they'd done. At the same time, perhaps because of some unconscious guilt or as a very conscious solution to an unorthodox problem, Andrew tried to pluck up Lizzie's spirits with the only thing he really understood, money. After the robbery, Lizzie's wardrobe became lavish. Her purse was always full. These monetary gifts were an unusually large gesture from Andrew, who had yet to install running water in his home and recycled newspapers for use in the bathroom. According to Borden expert Virginia Lincoln, it did seem at this time that Andrew, quote, had begun to fear for Lizzie's mental equilibrium, end quote. She had potentially committed a crime without even seriously trying to hide it from her family. It's possible, on some level, that she wanted to get caught, perhaps to alleviate some unconscious guilt she felt for despising her stepmother so. It may also have been a jealous act intended directly for the woman threatening Lizzie's sizable inheritance. If so, this would not be the last crime she committed in her father's household. Lizzie was now 31, with no romantic prospects, and still living with her parents, with a desire to move up on the hill and a mounting jealousy of her stepmother, 
Lizzie began to plan her most heinous crime, not yet with a hatchet, but with poison. Hydrogen cyanide is colorless and highly toxic. During World War I, it was used as a chemical weapon. Before that, it was sold in neighborhood drugstores under the name prussic acid. Unlike arsenic, however, which was sold freely over the counter, one required a prescription for prussic acid. Lizzie Borden either didn't know this or was trying to find a way around it when, in the middle of a record-breaking heat wave, she made her way to the New Bedford drugstore carrying a fur cape, announced that there were moths in it, and asked for 10 cents worth of prussic acid to kill them. The druggist at the counter, Eli Bentz, refused to request for the highly volatile poison, suggesting other methods of removing moths from fur. He later testified that Lizzie insisted several times she needed to purchase the acid and lied about having bought it before without a prescription. Defeated and upset, Lizzie left the druggist. That same week, she decided to take a trip out of town, uncharacteristically sharing a beach house with five other women in Buzzards Bay. If Lizzie was plotting to murder her stepmother, there are a few explanations for this impromptu vacation. Maybe she was establishing an alibi, trying to appear calm and relaxed. Perhaps she was figuring out how to proceed without poison. Or maybe she was simply fleeing the heat wave that was just now plaguing Fall River. Whatever the reason, the friends she was with would later testify that Lizzie was not her usual self during the trip. She seemed despondent and preoccupied. They were surprised when she decided to cut the vacation short, returning to Fall River several days early because of unexpected work with her church. Lizzie wasn't the only Borden who left Fall River that week. Her sister Emma, who reportedly almost never went out of town, traveled to nearby Fairhaven, only two miles away. That wasn't nearly far enough away to escape the heat wave, which was the reason Emma gave for her uncharacteristic trip. We have no way of knowing if Emma was aware of Lizzie's murderous plans, so we can't say if the sisters coordinated their trips or not. But either way, Emma's absence was the perfect opportunity for Lizzie to be completely alone with her father and stepmother. Lizzie already knew her father and stepmother's schedules down to the minute. Her father, as obsessive as he was, woke up, carried a slop bucket to the backyard, and then sat down to breakfast at nearly the same time every day. And over the last few years particularly, Lizzie's stepmother had become more and more of a shut-in, rarely leaving the house by herself. After the robbery just a few months earlier, Abby was by Andrew's side as much as possible, especially when Lizzie was around. This inability to isolate Abby may very well be the reason two bodies were found on the morning of August 4th, 1892, instead of one. Abby wasn't the only one in the family who was socially isolated. All three Borden women were getting out less and less. When human beings go through stressful times, a lack of emotional support and friendship has been known to increase anxiety and hinder our ability to cope. That's according to a study on emotional similarity conducted at USC by Professor Sarah S. M. Townsend. The same study found that isolation can deteriorate one's mental health. Such damage has been documented in prison inmates following periods of solitary confinement. For more reasons than one, then, 
it's safe to assume that this was an incredibly stressful time for all three women in the Borden household. And the constant heat in a home without running water certainly wasn't making it easier. Which is why Andrew and Abby's next misstep may have proved to be their last. Andrew's former brother-in-law, John Morse, was still advising him on real estate. And Lizzie was still not talking to John. When she came home the evening of August 2nd, she found him visiting in the parlor. She headed straight to her room without saying a word. John and Andrew were discussing their biggest real estate deal yet, one that would put an entire farm in Abby's name. John would be installed as the farm's caretaker. Lizzie had been furious when Andrew gifted a $1,500 house to her stepmother five years earlier. Imagine how seething she would become when her inheritance was jeopardized for an investment of this magnitude. She had already been planning to poison Abby, but this real estate deal was the final straw. The clock was ticking for Lizzie, who had all the motive she needed, but no murder weapon. She had to get rid of her stepmother once and for all. But how? Up next, we'll investigate the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. Now back to the story. It was Tuesday, August 2nd, 1892. 32-year-old Lizzie Borden had just discovered her father was planning to put a farm in his second wife, Abby's name, after consulting with John Morse, who Lizzie had refused to talk to for years. Lizzie's sister Emma would be out of town for the next couple of days, and John had made plans to stay with the Bordens. Now, we can't be certain why and when Lizzie decided to murder Andrew and Abby. Was it after hearing about the real estate deal, or years earlier? Or was it a reflex decision, a crime of passion? However she came to the idea, Lizzie's next 24 hours were remarkably calm and thoughtful— she seemed to think it best to bide her time until John was gone, rather than try to overpower him along with her stepmother and father. It was then, 18 hours before the murders, when Lizzie did something truly unbelievable. For the first time in five years, she had lunch with Andrew and Abby. No one knows how the meal went, or what was said, but given the pressure in the Borden household that day, it must have been tense. It's quite possible that Lizzie was trying to establish some sort of alibi to show that she was on decent terms with her stepmother the day before the crime. It's also possible she was trying to convince herself one more time not to go through with it. Perhaps she was finding a way to say goodbye to her stepmother if, as some believe, she really had no intention of murdering Andrew as well. On some level, though, it must have been infuriating for Lizzie not to have had her colorless prussic acid to drop in Abby's water glass, which surely was being refilled time and time again in that sweltering heat. Things may have gone very differently for Lizzie had she found a more discreet, dignified way of getting rid of Abby. The wheels in her head were definitely turning after that lunch, though. A few hours later, she paid a visit to one of her sister's only friends, fellow spinster Alice Russell. According to testimony Alice would later give in court, Lizzie said she, quote, had a feeling that somebody was going to do something, end quote. She told stories about her father's enemies, recounting how so many people must hate him for his ruthless business practices. This wasn't untrue. 
According to Victoria Lincoln's historic accounts, the most common reaction to the news of Andrew's death the next morning was, quote, well, somebody did a good job, end quote. Alice recalled that Lizzie continually used the word they, but couldn't be more specific. They all hated her father, and Lizzie wouldn't be surprised if they burned down the house. At this point, we can see Lizzie introducing the notion of other suspects into her father and stepmother's future murder. Planning her father's murder was an incredible shift for Lizzie, who, at this point, had only borne animosity towards her stepmother. We already know how close Lizzie and Andrew were, how he wore her high school ring, how she never blamed him for giving Abby real estate. It seems she truly did love him, and deciding to murder him must have been a difficult decision. Nevertheless, if Lizzie's goal was to shift the blame off herself and onto Andrew's enemies, she'd done it well by being cordial with her parents over lunch and confiding false fears to Alice Russell. A family friend for many years, Alice was as good a choice as any to serve as audience for Lizzie's sudden panic. With Lizzie's sister out of town, it only makes sense she would go to a friend like Alice for counsel. And with that, Lizzie went home to get some rest. She would have a busy day tomorrow, after all. The next morning, there was again record heat for that month in Fall River. The local newspaper had a prediction in the mid-80s, which doesn't seem too unbearable until you consider that Fall River was a coastal New England town, with temperatures usually ranging from the 40s to 60s the rest of the year. This weather certainly wasn't helping Lizzie's mood any. According to a Swiss study conducted by Dr. Faust in 1974, heat is capable of triggering violence and aggression, as well as depression. This is especially true in a town like Fall River, where people are unaccustomed to intense heat. At sunrise on August 4, 1892, the temperature was already in the 80s. Bridget was the first to rise that morning, followed by Andrew, who went out to feed the pigs in his usual routine. Shortly thereafter, John and Abby met Andrew at the breakfast table. As usual, when John was around, Lizzie did not leave her room. Andrew had collected pears from the backyard for the meal. Bridget was also serving mutton soup, sliced mutton, pancakes, bananas, cookies, and coffee. A very heavy summer meal indeed. After breakfast, John left the house. He had some business to attend to in town, but he would be back in a few hours for lunch. Andrew began brushing his teeth at the sink, while Bridget washed dishes beside him. For some reason, though, Bridget soon began to feel very sick. She ran out into the backyard and vomited. There are countless theories as to who was responsible for the deaths of Andrew and Abby, but the fact of the matter is that only two other people were present at the scene of the crime when it happened, Lizzie Borden and Bridget Sullivan. And this is the fact that became irreconcilable for the all-male jury, who would later declare Lizzie not guilty. Well brought up and moderately intelligent young ladies simply do not commit murders with a hatchet by bright mid-morning with the maid at home. Truly, at that time, the idea of a female murderer was inconceivable. If Lizzie had one saving grace in her trial, it was her gender. The fact remains, however, that Bridget was also there during the murders. 
Does that explain why she suddenly took ill minutes before they were to occur? Was it a physical reaction to some feeling of dread? Perhaps Lizzie had told her what was about to happen. A sudden attack of nerves would certainly be enough to make someone sick. Unfortunately, though, this is all speculation. What is not speculation is what happened next. After Bridget ran outside, Andrew left for work. Lizzie had come down from her room and was alone with Abby. During that time, something strange happened. When Bridget returned from the yard, Abby commanded her to clean all the windows of the house inside and out immediately. This is strange for Abby, who rarely commanded anything of anyone, even the maid. She simply wasn't a confident or authoritative person. Stranger still is the fact she insisted the windows be cleaned that very moment, when the sun was reaching its high point, by a woman who had just vomited in the yard. Many close to the Bordens have supposed that Lizzie and Abby were about to discuss the forthcoming real estate deal. It was entirely inappropriate to have an argument in front of the maid, so Abby most likely assigned Bridget an arbitrary task to have a private discussion with Lizzie. Abby was planning to go to the bank that morning to sign the deed to the farm. Before she left the house, however, she needed to tidy the room of her house guest, John Morse. She was making up his bed when a hatchet was thrown, with great force, into her back. Abby suffered 19 more heavy blows as she was dying. When Lizzie was finished, she retrieved the hatchet and left Abby's body in a pile of dirty linens. Lizzie now had 90 minutes before Andrew was to return from work. Bridget was still washing windows, so Lizzie settled down with a copy of Harper's Weekly and sewed a button loop on a blouse that had been bothering her. When Bridget returned from washing the windows outside, she set about cleaning them from the inside. She later testified she was totally unaware that a dead body lay upstairs. Lizzie talked to her about a dress goods sale that was happening in town. With still more time to kill, Lizzie began ironing handkerchiefs in the sitting room. This is what she was doing at 10.30 when Andrew returned to take a morning nap before lunch with John. He settled down to sleep on the sofa beside Lizzie as she ironed. Shortly before 11, Bridget went up to her attic room to rest. Less than 20 minutes later, she heard Lizzie cry out, quote, Maggie, come down quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him, end quote. According to crime scene photos, the hatchet had primarily struck his head, killing him instantly, as opposed to Abby, whose blows had been primarily in the body, causing a slower and more painful death. The entire left side of Andrew's face had been destroyed. His eye hung down on his cheek. One of the blows had bisected a tooth. On his pinky finger was the ring Lizzie gave him years earlier. The first person Lizzie sent for was Alice Russell, whom she had paid a frantic visit to the evening before. After that was the next-door neighbor and family physician, Dr. Seabury Warren Bowen. As Bridget left, Lizzie sat down on her back steps. When Mrs. Adelaide Churchill, her neighbor, called over to see if something was wrong, Lizzie replied, quote, Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. End quote. Lizzie's answers were becoming increasingly strange, though her behavior was reportedly very calm. It was as if she hadn't considered her answers in advance at all. 
she was entirely unprepared for an inquisition of any kind. Upon entering the house and seeing Andrew's body, Mrs. Churchill asked Lizzie where her stepmother was. Lizzie replied, quote, I don't know but that she's been killed too, for I thought I heard her come in too, end quote. Several sources close to Lizzie have since testified to how honest she was and how much she detested lying. According to the same group of women Lizzie went to Buzzard Bay with, quote, it's more likely Lizzie would commit a murder than that she would lie about it afterward, end quote. It is interesting to note then that Lizzie's answers about her whereabouts the day of the murders were always truthful. The only thing she ever denied was actually committing the crimes. As her answers became increasingly hard to believe, however, so did the possibility of her innocence. It was apparent that morning that, at the very least, Lizzie knew more than she was saying. Even if she didn't commit the murders, lying about what she knew would make her an accomplice. The consequences for this alone would have been severe. But not if Fall River had anything to say about it. What would it look like if one of their own, a church-going woman, born and raised in Fall River, were convicted of such a crime? We'll close today's episode with one final quote from the book A Private Disgrace, Lizzie Borden by Daylight, authored by Victoria Lincoln. Quote, It was ourselves we protected, not Lizzie. She was the skeleton in our cupboard, the black sheep in our family. A disgrace, but a private disgrace. End quote. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. Next week, we'll see how far Fall River was willing to go to protect its reputation, how evidence was hidden, destroyed, and lost, how the maid, Bridget Sullivan, suddenly and inexplicably disappeared back to Ireland, and how Lizzie Borden, in a trial with national coverage and a heap of evidence pointing directly to her, was found not guilty by a jury of 12. You can find more Female Criminals and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Freddie Beckley and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.